I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's Todd, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is constantly changing, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. We start this week with a question asked by White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Can you imagine shutting down the government over a political stunt? Well, I can imagine it, and we might be about to do just that on Tuesday Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy directed top congressional Republicans to open an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. That reversed his previous stance that any investigation like this would only be initiated with a full vote of the House. That didn't happen. We also have news on retirements, manhunts, and indictments here in America. And from Queens, New York, one of the best sports stories of the entire year. And to help us make sense of everything that's going on this week, we have three sharp, very close observers of the news and good friends of mine. Taylor Popolars, Washington correspondent from Spectrum News is here. Taylor, hi. Hey, Todd. Great to be here. Benji Sarlin from Semaphore. He's the Washington bureau chief. Benji, good to have you. Good to be here, Todd. And Cheryl Gay Stolberg, of course, Washington correspondent for the New York Times, familiar guest to all 1A listeners. Cheryl, it's always great to see you. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be back. So let's start with news about Hunter Biden. we got a lot to get to, and many of these stories are interconnected and interlaced. So Hunter Biden, on Thursday, special counsel David Weiss announced that President Biden's son is facing new felony gun charges, three charges. Federal prosecutors claim Hunter Biden made false statements about not being addicted to or using drugs when he bought a gun in Delaware. That's according to the indictment. So Benji, this all comes after a plea deal fell apart earlier this summer that addressed this gun issues, and some other issues. What exactly is Hunter Biden charged with now? The charges themselves are pretty straightforward. Uh, He filled out a form to purchase a gun. As part of it, you have to say you are not addicted to drugs. Then he wrote an entire memoir about how he was addicted to drugs. So, you know, you don't need (laughs) Columbo to solve this case exactly. Um, But as to the bigger question of what's going on here, why, Uh, There's a bit of a matter of debate here. You know, you mentioned there was a plea deal that fell apart amid public claims from some agents associated with the case that they had been slow walking the case and that internally some people wanted to charge him from the outset. And there's sort of a debate about those claims. On the one hand, this is a total up or down case. The evidence isn't even really contested. But on the other hand, it's pretty rarely prosecuted in these types of circumstances. You know, some legal experts argue, basically, if you were not the president's son, odds are you wouldn't see an indictment here. Uh, so, so it's sort of an interesting case. There's multiple layers to it. People, the expert lawyers who we all talk to and who you see on TV, they all have great jobs now. Like everybody wants to talk to TV lawyers, have basically said um, this gun was purchased, never used, never discharged. Normally the feds don't charge a gun violation like that. They usually don't go after drug users because they want to incentivize getting help and getting clean, not prosecution. That's the usual but we'll learn more about this case, about whether it's 
special malign treatment from Hunter Biden. I'm sure his argue, his lawyers might argue that if that's the case. But Cheryl, this is a complication for the president, both personally, I'm sure, because of his love for his son, but also politically. Yeah, there's no question that it complicates things for Joe Biden. Uh, the White House was really hoping that this would go away with a plea deal. Um, the GOP is pursuing kind of a guilt by association strategy as we're seeing unfold on Capitol Hill with the opening of an you know impeachment investigation. Um, and you know, Joe Biden's persona is that of a family man, and it sort of defies logic. Although we, there's no clear evidence that Joe Biden profited or you know was involved in any of his son's alleged wrongdoings, but it's still defies logic to think that he didn't know anything about what his son was up to because he's such a family man, because the Bidens are such a tight family. And, you know, the polls show that the public is dubious. Um, Well over half of Americans have said that they think that Biden had some involvement in his son's business dealings while he was vice president. And while this indictment is narrowly confined to a gun charge, it opens up the broader question of Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings, the Burisma Energy Company, the profits and, you know, ties to Chinese, uh, you know, investors. And so it's a It's a can of worms for the Biden White House at a time when the president wants the country to be focusing on Bidenomics, on his domestic achievements, on lower drug prices, et cetera. It's a big distraction. And and, and that train of thought of the distraction, which goes from a very narrow gun charge, which is where we started, to the generalized feelings about Joe Biden's involvement in whatever Hunter's doing, is exactly the point of impeachment, which we're going to talk about in one second. It's very interesting what you just had to say there, Taylor. Hunter Biden's being charged. You would think that Republicans who've been hammering on Hunter Biden for well over two years now uh, would be thrilled that he's being charged with crimes. But they're not very happy with this. Why not? They're not. When the plea deal was coming into fruition back in July, they were pointing the finger saying this is a sweetheart deal and saying of all the crimes that we believe Hunter Biden has committed, this is the lowest on the list, the lowest hanging fruit, and he's clearly getting preferential treatment from the Justice Department. Then the plea deal fell apart and they were waiting on bated breath. Now these new charges came out and you heard James Comer, who heads the Oversight Committee for Republicans in the House, basically saying on a scale of 1 to 12, 1 being the highest, 12 being the lowest, I would say this is number 12 in terms of what I think Hunter Biden should be held to account for. So it doesn't seem that Republicans will be satisfied really with anything when it comes to Hunter Biden, unless I guess every crime they allege he has committed ends up getting, you know, he ends up getting charged with. So it's interesting to hear because it's worth pointing out, this is, you know, a Justice Department that President Biden is overseeing right now. David Weiss is the special counsel who was a Donald Trump appointee, but Republicans are still saying he's not acting properly and we're frustrated with what's going on. A Donald Trump appointee, the special counsel. Um, Now, you mentioned uh, Republicans being upset that they're not getting enough out of everything they think they know about Hunter Biden. And that brings us directly to the Speaker of the House and to impeachment. Kevin McCarthy had this to say um, just a couple of days ago. Listen, these are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. 
Benji, what evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors do House Republicans actually have? And what evidence do they not have concerning the person who's in office, Joe Biden? Let's start with the obvious here. There was not some big sudden revelation or piece of evidence that came out that forced their hand and suddenly rallied members behind an impeachment inquiry. It's been more of a slow burn. So they've been pursuing a variety of uh, different angles. They've been looking at... uh, one, Hunter Biden's business dealings, you know, often involving foreign entities. And this is stuff that, you know, we pretty much knew about in the broad strokes before Biden's election that, you know, Hunter was going around while he was you know, addicted to drugs and dealing with multiple with various personal crises, you know, getting a bunch of jobs where uh, having the last name Biden probably was helpful. Now, what they have not found is any evidence. In fact, many of their witnesses and documents actively contradict this idea that Biden was profiting off Hunter Biden's dealings. That is, which is really what would turn this into a serious impeachment case that would be, you know, especially problematic. What about taking a bribe, Benji? Do they have evidence he took a bribe? Absolutely no evidence Biden took a bribe. So they don't Um, have evidence he took a bribe. They don't have evidence that he used his influence to help Hunter Biden's business dealings. So Cheryl, that's the what. The question then becomes the why. Why impeach now? Why do it in this way? Why are Republicans doing this? Uh, I I was going to say two words, Matt Gaetz. And Uh by that, I mean that um, Kevin McCarthy is under serious pressure from the right to do this. Matt Gaetz is a Florida congressman who has literally been taunting um, McCarthy and who led the push to extract a promise from Kevin McCarthy that he could be ousted on a snap vote of the House. And Gates has come to the floor of the House and has said that McCarthy is not operating in compliance with that deal. And one of the things that the right wants, um, in addition to uh, recalcitrance on spending, is for an impeachment inquiry to into Joe Biden. And I think, you know, McCarthy is sort of caught between a rock and a hard place but Republicans, here. Re- Republicans have been saying since before they won the November election, since I looked back, September of 2022, two months before the midterm elections, they were already promising that if they regain the House, they will impeach. Right. They were always going to do this. And they and now there's, you know, there's pressure on McCarthy to act on those promises. Republicans are saying that, you know, at this point in the Pelosi speakership, you know, investigations were already underway into Trump. And they, you know, they see a parallel here. How and important is it that Trump wants this? He's very he's, important. And he's very been on the important. phone to them. Yes. It's extremely important that Trump wants this. We know that uh, from reporting from my own newspaper that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Elise Stefanik had both been talking to Donald Trump about the prospect of impeachment proceedings. Trump, of course, is very eager for it um, and as vengeful payback and also as a help to his own political prospects in 2024, as he himself faces 91 counts of indictment for alleged wrongdoing. Donald Trump was twice impeached by the House of Representatives. We're going to talk more about why he wants to make sure Joe Biden is impeached, too, and also about those 91 felony counts and what some of the incentives might be for news coverage and why House Republicans are doing this now. It's very important to understand the why. Benji gave us the what, and they're going to be investigating the what. But the why, to me, is the much more important question right now in the absence of hard evidence that Joe Biden has done what Kevin McCarthy was 
alluding to there. A lot more of the roundup still ahead. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation. So, gang, back to the issue of impeachment and the why. Taylor, I wanted, we, were, we were speaking before the show a little bit about some of the parallels to this impeachment and the Benghazi investigation and the run-up to the 2016 election. The nominee then would be Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. Benghazi was launched. We can't get into the details of the investigation here, but we can talk about the incentives and the coverage to explain some of the why of this impeachment. There was round-the-clock coverage when the Benghazi investigation was playing out. There were very public hearings that were televised where then-Secretary Hillary Clinton was testifying for hours on end about what happened to this embassy and the attack and what was known intelligence-wise. What most stood out politically speaking, though, was Kevin McCarthy, who was not yet speaker but was rising in the ranks of Republican leadership, gave an interview, I believe it was on Fox News, where he was asked about the investigation and basically said – this is, you know, helping us politically look at Hillary Clinton's poll numbers. That's kind of the, the summation of it. And that kind of took the air out of the balloon as Republicans were moving forward with this probe and insisting that Hillary Clinton should not become the Democratic nominee because of what happened in Benghazi. And it became a very, it became a political punchline for a lot of Democrats. And for Republicans, it was viewed as a bit of a slip up and it impacted McCarthy's rise and it delayed him getting to the speakership by several years. Now you have McCarthy as speaker. Speaker, as Cheryl was just mentioning, having to pursue this investigation, some members basically saying, no matter what, we have to go forward with this. And because McCarthy has now risen to a position that he's dreamt of having for basically his whole life, he's saying, all right, we're going to move forward with this no matter what. It's also interesting when you look back at Donald Trump's first impeachment and you look at big Republican allies like Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio, who said the second that Trump got elected, Democrats knew they were going to impeach him. This is wrong. This was premeditated. Now, Democrats are arguing Republicans are doing the exact same thing. And as you alluded to, they've been talking about it since before the midterm elections. Gunji, one of the stories of Benghazi, as Taylor says, is the coverage. And back then, that story ended with something we're all familiar with. Lock her up. Lock her up. The chance that that really were the the, the beating heart of the Trump campaign. Are the incentives similar now? Are Republicans relying on a certain kind of coverage of wrongdoing in the Biden family to help lead them toward the 2024 election? 
Well, obviously, I mentioned earlier that there wasn't some big revelation that accelerated this this impeachment push, unlike, say, the first Trump impeachment, where what really kicked things into overdrive was news of his call, uh, you know, with uh, with Zelensky that, you know, made it pretty much untenable for Democrats not to pursue impeachment. Um, But what is going on is, yes, the more Trump gets indicted, (laughs) the more uh, incentive there is to try to muddy the waters by saying, look, uh, Biden has an impeachment inquiry hanging over him. Trump has 91 indictments. They both have legal issues. Both you know, guys are corrupt, in other words. Yeah, yeah Trump exactly. might be corrupt. Like you have hey. trouble with both. Maybe one were years-long investigations that are actually being presented before a jury with mountains of evidence. Maybe the other one is is just an investigation that hasn't found any direct evidence. But they both can fall under legal issues. Now, I will say within this, partisanship can matter a lot. You know, in that Benghazi case, it, it affected McCarthy. But the big thing that probably made Trump president is that they found in that investigation, not really related to anything with Benghazi, about Hillary Clinton's private email server. And the substance of that investigation, that substantive piece that was new information, ended up having huge effects. Um, I would say that is probably going to be the measure of an impeachment inquiry more than whether it's seen as partisan. It's can they produce new information that's relevant to voters? That's really what matters. And that new information put the FBI director, James Comey, on television 10 days before the election to denounce the Democratic nominee. Remember that? I sure do. Cheryl, go ahead. I do remember that. And, it, you know, and a lot of people will tell you that cost Hillary Clinton the election. But what I was thinking as Benji was talking is that it's really going to be incumbent, I think, on the press this time around to draw the distinction. We have a former president who is facing 91 felony counts for actions that he himself took. And we have, on the other hand, on Capitol Hill, this impeachment inquiry that really revolves around the Biden, the Biden family, not around the president himself. And so I think there's a false equivalence there. And I think we in the press are all going to have to watch out for for that and for not falling into the trap of of creating that false equivalence of saying okay there's you know they're both under investigation so you know a pox on both their houses political coverage that right, right. That, and, that equalizes things that aren't necessarily equal right and separately from that i wanted to come back to something about mccarthy you know in 2015 a north carolina congressman named mark meadows hmm. from the far right freedom caucus walked to the well of the house and filed a motion to quote unquote vacate the chair that is a parliamentary talk for ousting the speaker and kevin mccarthy was Speaker John Boehner's number two at that time. And that move by Meadows led ultimately to the resignation of John Boehner. Boehner just decided he had had it. He didn't want to contend with the far-right Freedom Caucus anymore. And McCarthy watched that very closely. And he has seen this movie before, and he doesn't want to be the next John Boehner. You're suggesting he might have learned how to survive, which brings me to our next topic, because I said a lot of things were interconnected and interrelated, and boy, did I mean it. Taylor, there is a government shutdown looming in that very same House of Representatives. That very same Speaker of the House is on the hook to try to prevent that shutdown. Why did I just say that? Why is the impeachment of Joe Biden connected to this government shutdown that's looming, and how close are they to actually shutting down? 
Well, we have two weeks until the government, they either have to pass what's called a continuing resolution, a short-term funding bill to keep the doors open and allow negotiations to continue, or they can try to plan something a bit longer term, but that's looking more and more unlikely. The reason it's all connected has to do, and this is why the House of Representatives is so interesting. You have 435 members, but especially from the press perspective, we're usually focused on maybe 10 or a dozen who are kind of the rabble rousers. And in this case, it's mostly members of the far-right Conservative Freedom Caucus who have been holding McCarthy's feet to the fire, they are in many ways pumping fuel into the idea of a shutdown because they don't like the funding deals. They don't want to continue support for Ukraine. But then there's also impeachment. And a lot of people thought, oh, McCarthy is going to move forward with this impeachment inquiry to quiet them down and say, hey, we'll pursue this while also hashing out a funding deal. We'll avoid a shutdown. We'll continue our investigation. Several of these members, though, came out this week for the three days that they were in session in Washington and said, yeah, uh, the funding deal is a mess and we need to figure that out and a shutdown might happen. But impeachment is separate for us. And that was going to happen either way because it's such a crisis that needs to be figured out, but that's not going to quiet us down in terms of the funding debacle. So it's an interesting you know, dilemma for McCarthy because it doesn't seem like he could please them in any sense. And I spoke with a GOP member who was in their conference meeting on Thursday who said McCarthy was visibly frustrated. He brought up Congressman Matt Gates, who's threatening to file this motion to vacate the chair. Well, he, was cur- he was cursing, cursing in their private him. meeting <laughs> in words I cannot say here. Exactly. And basically threatening him and saying, do it, you know, let's, let's hash this out in public. So it's an interesting time for McCarthy, who so badly wanted this job and is now dealing with not just a traditionally thin margin in the House that we saw Speaker Pelosi deal with when Democrats were in control, but he has these members who are basically saying we won't be satisfied with anything and we're, you know, zigzagging from impeachment to a potential shutdown. And McCarthy is showing the extent that he will go to to keep that job and avoid following the fate of his former former boss, John Boehner. Well, let's give the House a break for just one second. Let's go to the Senate because there's Alabama um, Senator Tommy Tuberville. He's refusing to budge on more than 300. There's 300 military officers now who have not gotten their promotions. He's been blocking them despite growing pressure from his fellow Republicans. Here's one. I think holding these non-policy-making career military who can't be in involved in politics at all uh, is a mistake. And uh, we continue to, 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 to work on that. And I hope at some point uh, we can get it cleared. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell there, of course, talking to reporters on Tuesday. So for six months, Tuberville's been holding up military nominations to protest a Pentagon policy that ensures that service members can access abortions and other reproductive health care by getting their travel paid for um, and so on. Cheryl, How many – I mentioned 300 positions being affected. Are they any closer to a resolution? Is Tuberville moving at all? No, no. He is absolutely dug in. And I think this shows sort of the extent to which abortion politics have – taken control of a lot of the business of of Congress. And this is a real problem. You know, you mentioned 300 military personnel being denied their promotions. But among those military personnel uh, is the potential next head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, General Mark Milley is retiring and Biden has nominated uh, his successor, uh, General Charles Q. Brown, Air Force General. And Brown's advancement is being held up by this Tuberville move. And you can hear the frustration in Mitch McConnell's voice. And it in, in a way, it's kind of a test of McConnell's leadership or his clout. I mean, he is clearly not able to bring Tuberville in line. Um, 
And I think this is bad strategy for the Republicans because Americans don't like it when Congress messes with the men and women who are defending the country. Um, so I think it's not really a good look for Republicans, and McConnell recognizes that. And Tuberville has been entirely unwilling to move. Um, I should say, I think I just promoted Mitch McConnell to majority leader. He's the minority leader. Let me correct that. I'm sure that he doesn't mind the promotion, but we won't give it to him here. It's his former title. Just a former title, not his current title. So also a very busy week on Capitol Hill in the hearing rooms in the world of tech. On Wednesday, the country's largest tech executives, the biggest ones, loosely endorsed, regulating artificial intelligence, AI, at a closed-door Senate meeting. That meeting included Tesla founder and owner of X, formerly called Twitter. Here's Elon Musk talking to reporters after that meeting on Wednesday. The key point was really that um, it's important for us. It's important for us to have um, a referee, just as you have a referee in a sports game uh, or all sports games, and that the games are better for it. This meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. That was Elon Musk talking to reporters after that Senate meeting on AI. Benji, what are the main takeaways from this meeting? Is is Congress equipped to regulate AI and all of the major issues it might be bringing to the culture very, very quickly? Well, I'd say one of the main takeaways is that minimum, there's just tremendous interest in this issue. I mean, the the fact that you could just get everyone from Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg to Bill Gates to Sam Altman, but also the head of the AFL-CIO, the head of the largest teachers union, you know, all in a room together to discuss it, shows how much interest is. Now, Schumer and other members, this isn't really a partisan issue yet, leaders in both parties have talked about how they may need regulation around AI. They're very interested in it. There's working groups. But it's a very, very immature process at this point uh, on both the congressional side and the industry side. There's some general ideas in Congress about things you might want to try to regulate, misinformation, say, or consumer regulations about, you know, knowing what goes into decisions that AI is influencing, or national security implications, having some kind of kill switch on AI or banning certain kinds of research. But it's still pretty vague. And on the industry side, they're still not sure about the implications of their own product. You know, our reporters, Kadia Goba and Reed Albergata, had a good story on how, you know, when you ask folks like Elon Musk, what regulations do you want? They're often unsure because they're saying, you know, we don't even know what the scene will look like in three, five, ten years, what people will be using this technology for. Uh, it, it's a little hard to regulate it when it's still so early in the process. But at minimum, they have everyone's attention on this, mm-hmm. on both the House side, Senate side, industry side, everyone's paying attention. Well, AI moves fast. The Senate does not. So we'll see how that dynamic plays out. And and it's not just rhetorical. It's important because AI is advancing incredibly quickly and probably much faster than our politics allows for. Um, I want to return to the Senate just briefly because Senator Mitt Romney announced that he's leaving the Senate. He's retiring on Wednesday. Here's something he had to say. I've spent my last 25 years in public service of one kind or another. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. Mitt Romney announced he's not going to be seeking re-election in 2024. Now, I just want to make sure we get to this because there was an article that came out in The Atlantic tied to Romney's retirement by journalist McKay Coppins. Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney in that article says some extraordinary and astonishing things. He says that he now pays $5,000 a day 
for his personal security because he voted to impeach and is a critic of Donald Trump. He said he's had personal conversations with members of Congress on in both houses, Republicans, who say, I wanted to vote for impeachment. I didn't because I feared for my safety and the safety of my family, Taylor. Yeah, it's a it's a stark reality for members of Congress right now, especially over the last few years. We've seen the number of threats against lawmakers rise. Capitol Police is understaffed, is still recouping from the January 6th attack on the Capitol and is trying to figure out how to go about this moving forward. I also think of former Ohio Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, who was a kind of rising star in Republican politics, one of the 10 House members who voted to impeach Donald Trump. He decided to leave office because in part due to threats to his family, he remembered arriving back home in Cleveland and having state troopers greet him at the gate to escort him and his family home. Romney is very wealthy and is able to afford that. And it was acknowledged in McKay Coppin's great piece. But it's a stark reality right now. A stark reality for Republican members of Congress, by the way, again, who are dissenting against the MAGA wing of their party, ousted and having to hire security to protect their own families. I'd like us to think about that. We're going to head to a quick break, but before we do, this week's MTV Music Awards made history. Taylor Swift set the record for the most wins in one night. In sync, gathered for a surprise reunion, just in time to present Taylor Swift with an award for best pop song. And Peso Pluma became the first Musica Mexicana star to perform on the VMA stage. He took the stage to deliver an electrifying performance of Lady Gaga on Tuesday night, which is what you're hearing right now. Stay with us. We've got a lot more of the News Roundup still ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stamps.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There is some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Let's get back to the roundup. I should say before we move on, in that report I gave from the MTV Music Awards, um, Taylor was upset that I neglected to mention that there was an in-sync reunion on stage as well. Taylor, I wanted to make sure that I hit that. 
Thank you. Yeah. That's a big deal. It was yeah. a big deal, and I, I had to skip the, the InSync news because we were pressed for time, but I didn't want to <laughs> leave it on the table. So um, back to the real world just for um, the rest of the show here. On Wednesday, Pennsylvania State Police finally captured a convicted murderer who escaped prison nearly two weeks ago. It took a police dog, aircraft, at least 20 tactical officers to capture Daniello Cavalcante, according to law enforcement. Shortly after 8 a.m., our suspect was captured. I want to say, first and foremost, thank God there were no injuries to law enforcement or to the public. We obviously became deeply concerned after the suspect was able to steal a weapon. He was apprehended this morning with no shots fired. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro there speaking at a news conference on Wednesday. Calvacante's escape went viral on social media. It was everywhere on cable, blowout coverage, CCTV footage captured him crab walking his way up a prison wall and climbing over razor wire, razor wire that had, had apparently been installed on the recommendations after another escape from the same facility. So Cheryl, why did this manhunt in Pennsylvania, do you think, capture so much national attention? You know, I just think it had all the qualities of a movie in a way. I mean, first of all, this video went viral. You saw this guy, um, you know, like you said, crab walking, like with his hands on one wall and his feet on another wall. Very you know, Mission Impossible. Yes. Like, and and so, and I think anytime there's a prison break like that, it is the stuff of movies. And then the the chase the search for him was riveting right up through the end where they had a DEA plane with like thermal imaging technology you know tracing him on the ground as searchers kind of closed in and then at the very end this police dog named Yoda <laughs> you know rushes into the to the rescue of Good the boy public of the week. that's right and bites the poor escapee on the head on the scalp and then held him by the the leg until officers could you know come in and get him and it, and also in a way it kind of has a happy ending as you heard the governor say no shots fired you know no one was was killed um the you know the murderer is back in custody and you and Cavalcante has been remanded to another facility. Part of the story ongoing is that there have been several escapes in Pennsylvania including from this very prison where an escape led to physical infrastructure changes and apparently ones that weren't good enough. So that story for people in Chester County and PA will continue. But I want to move on to Detroit because there's important economic news and important union news out of the United Auto Workers. Auto workers are striking at all three big three automaker plants for the first time in its 88-year history, in the history of the union. This decision came down just last night at midnight after an agreement couldn't be made between the UAW and Detroit's big three. That's General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. The union's demands include wage increases, cost of living raises, 13,000 workers are striking. But Taylor, not all 146,000 union members are picketing yet. So who's striking and where? How does this, how does this work? This is really interesting, and it's kind of a new strategy that the union is, is – 
testing out as the strike commences. There's about 13,000 auto workers who took to the picket line uh, just after midnight as, as Friday began in three different states, in Missouri, in Michigan, and Ohio, one plant in each state for each of the auto companies that you mentioned. And UAW's president said, we're doing this because they're planning for this to potentially last a while, and they want to keep these automakers guessing so that one day they might be picketing at this plant in Ohio, the other day, another day they might pick another plant, and that'll halt production. And he essentially said, we want to keep them on their toes if they're not willing to fairly negotiate with us. So it's fascinating because they've said they have a strike fund that has over $800 million in it. They can pay their members about $500 a week for about three months. And we've seen economic forecasts that if this strike could last just 10 days, it could cost the U.S. economy about $5 billion. So this is very high stakes, but a very strategic attempt by the union to get these automakers' attention. So an asymmetrical strategy there from the unions. But Taylor, what's at stake for the workers? What are they asking for? What do they need? Why are they doing this? This comes down to everything from pay to leave to rights to protest when auto plants are getting shut down in the U.S. and being moved overseas. The figures are pretty incredible when you look at the fact that the CEOs of these auto companies have, over the past four years, the length of their most recent contract that expired, saw their, the CEO pay went up 40%, but for the workers, it only went up 6%. Obviously, people know if they've been shopping around, the prices for cars have gone up. And there's this interesting debate over... We want to keep making vehicles on U.S. soil. You see the Biden administration wanting to transition to electric vehicle manufacturing, but we don't have all the parts here that are made in the U.S. So there's a big conversation with some political divides about what the direction should be moving forward. But these workers want their pay rates and their their leave abilities to basically follow with the economy. And the automakers, even though they're seeing sometimes record profits, they're saying we can't do that right now. The transition from gas to electric cars is important here. And Benji, speaking of gas, we're not at the point yet where you can drive a car everywhere all the time without filling up. And that leads us to inflation and gas prices, which is still a major issue in the economy. The Biden uh, administration's desire to switch to electrics notwithstanding. Uh, Consumer prices this week rose 3.7% from last month compared to a year ago. That's higher than the rate that it rose in July. But, But gas prices, Benji, accounted for more than half of that monthly increase. If you exclude gas and food prices, inflation rates actually declined from July to August. But if you don't, but people pay for gas, so don't exclude them. They're up. Benji, why are gas prices up now? What's causing this? Well, some of this is just typical seasonal changes. There's been a lot of struggles with production, even though gas production is at record heights in the U.S. This is also one of those funny kind of like economist versus consumer divides where gas prices are one of the most politically sensitive uh, commodities, you know, politicians hear an earful from voters whenever gas prices are up. But what economists are usually looking for is everything but gas prices and other commodities like food, which are also sensitive. They want to see things that tend to be more stable to tell uh, how inflation is going. So you're so the last inflation report you had an example where many economists were saying this is great news. We're heading towards you know a so-called soft landing where we defeat you know uh, inflation without a recession. But yeah, to the consumer, it's the gas prices that's going to matter most. Benji, some people look at this and they say it's simple. The Saudis want to help Donald Trump, so they're cutting production and that raises prices. It's as simple as that. But is it as simple as that? 
I don't know if it's that simple. Certainly the uh, Biden administration was absolutely outraged at the Saudis when earlier they they announced that they were cutting production. Um, You know, in that case, there was the additional context, of course, of the Ukraine war, which threw things into flux when Russia invaded and disrupted gas prices there as well. So they were looking for anything, any help they can get. But, you know, it's it's a complicated issue here. It's a global market. And of course, there's a there's a large transition away from fossil fuels in many ways that affects the market as well. Because remember, people aren't just making investments in production based on what the price of gas is today. They're also making a bet on what the price of gas will be and the demand will be a year from now, five years from right. now, 10 years from now. And we're seeing uh, demand decline uh, as we transition towards more renewable fuels. Well, internal combustion will be with us for a decade to come, at least. And and so will COVID, I have to say. Sorry for the transition, but it's true. And there is big COVID news this week, and it came out of both the CDC and the FDA, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They're recommending a new round of COVID boosters to combat COVID-19 for everyone. The CD says the extra vaccination could prevent 100,000 more hospitalizations every year, but only 17% of the U.S. population got a booster last year, which was made available in 2022. Cheryl, what do we know about the new booster and its effectiveness and um, why the FDA is recommending it now. I guess the more important question is why so few people are taking it. Well, I think so few people are taking it in part because we've seen, uh, you know, a big campaign to sow the seeds of doubt about vaccination, in particular COVID vaccination. Um, we also don't see terrific, you know, overwhelming update, uptake of the flu shot. And some people are... Never have. Right. And, and, and in fact, the government now is kind of talking about COVID's not in terms of a booster, but they're starting to call them a COVID shot. Just like you get your annual flu shot, you should get your annual COVID shot. And it, it, although it is approved for uh, an emergency use basis for Americans six months and older, we do know that the most vulnerable Americans, uh, older Americans, those are the populations for whom it is most important to take um, this COVID shot. And why take it? Well, it will reduce the likelihood of severe infection if you do get sick. You know, it'll be milder. You'll be less likely to miss work or school. You might be less likely to pass COVID on to somebody else who could be really vulnerable to it. So there are reasons to... um, to get vaccinated. Well, that's the advice to take the COVID vaccine. The advice came from the CDC for everyone to take that vaccine. But if you live in Florida, the Surgeon General of Florida said you shouldn't take the COVID vaccine. The absolute opposite message from the Surgeon General of Florida. Taylor, what do you make of it? Why would the Surgeon General of the state of Florida, especially with all the seniors that live there, say don't take it? It's unsurprising if you have followed Governor Ron DeSantis's administration throughout the pandemic and coming out of it. He installed this Surgeon General in part because he kind of fought against what federal health officials were recommending as we were coming out of like the height of lockdown and when vaccines were opening the scene. I was listening to DeSantis yesterday speak with a conservative radio host about COVID and part of his campaign, especially against Donald Trump, is trying to out Trump, Trump in the sense of saying, I was resistant to lockdowns. I've been resistant to vaccinations, even though I represent this state that is overwhelmingly elderly. So it's unsurprising to hear these health officials that DeSantis is installing say that. What's interesting, though, is that Trump is now trying to 
kind of have this balancing act of applauding his administration's response to the pandemic, helping create these vaccines that have scientifically, we've shown, saved many lives and prevented many people from dealing with lengthy hospitalizations, but also criticize DeSantis and say, you know, he wasn't moving fast enough and I will be the person to, you know, continue resisting these efforts by the CDC, et cetera. So it's an interesting kind of reality of the politics of the pandemic, even though the pandemic itself has been declared over. Not only that, but in Florida, what's striking is when you look at the death rate in the state of Florida, it was quite a bit above the national average um, for the number of people who died in the pandemic. And yet the advice comes from the state to not take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a stark reality of how this pandemic got politicized and how even though we're now kind of moving into this phase where we're talking about it being similar to a flu shot and kind of the yearly routine, you're still seeing political pushback, especially from politicians and their kind of chosen leaders who have higher ambitions. Right. I was just going to jump in and say, from a public health perspective, what we are seeing now is public health in the United States has become victim of partisan politics. Public health has always been political. It intersects with um, with politics because it requires government funding. The CDC is funded by the government. Local and and state health officials are funded by the government. So there's always been a political element. But what we have now, and it's very troubling to a lot of people in public health, is a partisan element to public health, where you're seeing a Republican vision of public health and a Democratic vision. And that split is not good for the health of the country. It's not. Um, And I want to leave that there for a moment to make sure that we have time for something that feels pretty good. Literally, like up until like 10 minutes before the match, I was just reading comments of people saying I wasn't going to win today. Um, And that just put the fire in in me. Coco Goff proved everybody wrong. The 19-year-old American tennis player won the U.S. Open on Saturday, beating Arena Sabalenka. She is the first American teenager to win the U.S. Open since Serena Williams won. Back in 1999, Taylor, how significant a victory for young Coco Goff. And is she the future? Tell me. Uh, you could argue yes in many ways. She's <laughs> she's achieving all of these incredible milestones. She hasn't even turned 20 yet. What I think is so incredible, the U.S. Open on their Twitter account or their X account, I guess we should say, they posted this video of her when she was much younger, when she was at the U.S. Open as a spectator. I think in the background you heard Carly Rae Jepsen's song Call Me Maybe playing. So this was a <laughs> few years ago. But she was there not too long ago as a kid. And now she comes back as a teenager winning it all. And as you mentioned, the first since Serena Williams the first American under 20 years old to take that prize. She idolized the Williams sisters growing up, and now you see her achieve their level of stardom. Sure. And I really think it's important to note that she's a black woman in a, in a sport that has historically been white. And that, I think, is not lost on, on the public. It's certainly not lost on Serena Williams, <laughs> whom uh, Coco Graf has modeled herself after. And um, you know, I think that's an uplifting thing. What a great U.S. Open and what a great U.S. Open for social media. They really hit their stride this week. Look up the video of Lil Wayne watching tennis. It's sublime. You can watch it 1,048 times and you never get over how great it is. Lil Wayne loves to watch pro tennis. My thanks this week go to Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent for The New York Times, to Benji Sarlin, of course, Semaphore's Washington bureau chief, and to Taylor Popolar's InSync fan, Washington correspondent for Spectrum News. By the way, I write a newsletter every week all about threats to democracy and authoritarianism in America. It's called Breaking the Vote. You can find it at vice.com slash breaking the vote. 
We're going to head to a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about some of the biggest headlines around the world during our global edition of the News Roundup. In Libya, catastrophic floods kill thousands. Large parts of Morocco are reduced to rubble after a powerful earthquake. And Iran's president ruffles feathers at the White House. We'll find out why in just a moment. Stay with us. Lots more news ahead. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes. But a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. We have a lot to get to this hour, a trip around the globe to look at the latest headlines from disasters in North Africa to the meeting in eastern Russia between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. All that and so much more with our panel of experts today. Joyce Karam is senior news editor at All Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing newsletter. Hi, Joyce. Good to have you. None dare call it a blog. Ryan Heath is global tech correspondent at Axios. Great to have you back, Ryan. Thanks, Todd. And here with me in studio is Zeba Warsi. She's a producer on the PBS NewsHour. Welcome, Zeba. Thank you, Jod. I'm glad you're all here. Um, North Africa, of course, has been reeling from natural disasters made worse by aging infrastructure. We're going to start in Morocco today, where a magnitude 6.8 earthquake devastated the Atlas Mountains region around Marrakesh. At least 2,900 people were killed and thousands more injured, according to the latest update from state media. So to my guests, stand by for just a couple of moments because I want to go to Alice Morrison. She's a resident in the mountain village of Imlil and the author of Walking with Nomads. Alice, it's good to have you. Thank you for having me. So it's been one week now since the terrible earthquake that I just described. Uh, What's the scene like in your village? In my village, um, my so I live in a, a family compound, and I'm the only person who's returned to my home to sleep. The others are still staying outside in tents. Their houses are habitable, but everyone's worried about the cracks in the infrastructure. So we're now very much looking forward to reconstruction, getting tourists back so that people can earn their living, because this is very much a farming and a tourist community. So as I say, we're, we're really looking forward to the future now. I've, I've been to that part of the world, and I, I believe I've been to Imlil, although it was years ago, and it's hard to remember exactly. I remember the bus, and I remember the food in Imlil. Um, it's a mountainous place um, and a beautiful place. You mentioned the need for keeping the home safe so that people can move back in. How, how far along is that effort? Well, the King of Morocco, who is much loved and trusted by his people, has just announced a huge package of aid to rebuild homes, to rehouse those that are temporarily without homes, and to repair homes. 
so really, you know, things are starting immediately. I mean, Morocco is a modern state and it's moved very quickly in all areas of this disaster. But it is going to take time. And I think one of the things that worries us is winters here are extremely cold, bitterly cold. And I speak from experience. Now, we're used to not having any heating. We don't have heating in our homes, but at least we have homes. And none of us want to see our brothers and sisters in the other areas of the mountains who are homeless outside in tents during winter. So that is a big concern. Before I let you go, Alice, just give me a sense of how people in the community are pulling together, making sure each other is housed and fed. This is a a very traditional Muslim community. Family is everything. The community is everything and religion is everything. So the values are very much around pulling together, about supporting each other. Anyone in this community, anyone would rather give you their bread and their tea than eat or drink it themselves. So that is one of the wonderful, wonderful things about being here. Well, Morocco has deployed ambulances, rescue crews and soldiers into the region to help with emergency response efforts. Um, Alice, thank you, by the way. Thank you for joining us and for giving us that read from the ground. Alice Morrison, resident of the mountain town of Imlil and author of Walking with Nomads. Alison, we appreciate you so much um, during this time. Thank you so much. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Morocco has deployed those ambulances, but the government has not made a broad appeal for help and accepted only limited foreign assistance from Spain, from Qatar, Britain, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. Not everybody's happy about that. This is Musa, who lost several family members to the earthquake, speaking to the AP on Monday. Yes, Morocco needs to accept international aid. Morocco needs to accept because it is not just us. All the surrounding villages got badly damaged as well. A lot of people got hit really badly. Therefore, Morocco needs to accept aid and everything it can get. One of the other voices from Morocco as it recovers from the terrible earthquake, 6.2, I believe, on the Richter scale, 2,900 people have died in that country. And we were speaking with Alice about the rebuilding there. You hear the voice of one resident who wants his country to accept outside aid to, to move things along. That's part of the situation in Morocco and a couple of thousand kilometers just to the east in Libya. Another disaster of unimaginable proportions and the pictures um, out of Derna in Libya have been just shocking. Malik Trena joins me now. He's a journalist with Al Jazeera English reporting from Tripoli. Malik, thanks for being here. No problem. So I'm, I'm referring, of course, to the terrible flooding in the Libyan coastal town of Derna. According to the Libyan Red Crescent, more than 11,300 people died in the flooding that I mentioned. Um, you're at a show of solidarity right now. What are people saying and, and what are you seeing, Malik? Well, I just want to make uh, clear, uh, just not, not too long ago, the Libyan Red Crescent uh, denied it was 11,000, and, and and there's a lot of numbers going around at the moment. Uh, some are saying 5,000, 6,000, and and really, I mean, that just just in the numbers itself of the catastrophe show how divided Libya is. I mean, you have statements coming from the internationally recognized government and uh, other other numbers coming from the east. So, uh, what we know for sure. Oh, I think we might have lost Malik there. It appears that Malik Traina's line is just not up to snuff, which is certainly understandable, um, reporting all the way from Tripoli. And communications from Darren, as we understand, are basically non-existent. So at least getting uh, getting a voice from Tripoli is is important at this point. We'll, we'll leave Malik 
and his reporting to it, Malik Trena from Al Jazeera English. Um, Zeba, you were just listening to our reporting from Morocco and from Libya. Um, the pictures out of Libya are, are stark, and the reporting is that two dams collapsed after torrential rains and basically flooded Derna with unimaginable uh, amounts amounts of water. Um, how important do you think this story has been on the international scene? I, I haven't seen reports of aid flooding in from other countries, but it might just be because it's early. It is early, but also just the sheer scale of the tragedy, as Malik was describing, there might be dispute over numbers, but thousands of people are believed to be still missing, trapped in the debris that were left after the floods. And we've seen the drone footage of widespread devastation. The widespread damage is indescribable and Malik was talking about the communication problem. Aid workers that I've been, touch, I've been in touch with near Derna talk about how that city is dealing with not just the aftermath of the floods, but also how they're completely isolated. Uh, it, there is no proper road in and out of the city. Most of the roads have been damaged. And communication is a big, big problem, even in rescue and relief work at the moment, uh, Todd. And he was mentioning that there is a dispute on the numbers of people who've died in this tragedy, but it is still unfolding. I think the biggest problem right now is collecting the dead bodies mm. that are lying everywhere in Derna. Uh, Joy, satellite imagery shows the extent of the disaster in Derna. Officials say that was exacerbated by poor maintenance and infrastructure on those two dams that I mentioned. Um, Malik was referring to conflict since 2011 and the toppling of Muammar Gaddafi. Do, do, do we have a sense of how badly that conflict and the continuing civil strife in rival governments is impacting the recovery at this point? Uh, yes, Todd, very badly. We are looking at a country that uh, essentially split in governance into East and uh, Western uh, Libya. But the bigger question here is a question of truly criminal negligence. Uh, why did the authorities in Eastern Libya not warn uh, that the two dams uh, are about to uh, to collapse? Uh, we've had the same uh, storm, Storm Daniel, that we're talking about. It hit Greece. It hit other parts of Europe, but we didn't see uh, the same uh, impact. Uh, that's because there was no warning. As Ziba was, uh, was mentioning um, uh, as well, there is no infrastructure. I mean, the, the dams um, uh, fell in the middle of the night. Uh, the people were trapped in their homes, and there's still no, uh, no accountability. We're seeing some aid come from Turkey, from the U.S., from others. Uh, but this is really a question of how much the conflict has hurt Libya and how these people are left uh, to their own to, you know, in, in facing uh, climate change. Let's turn now to Iran. This week, the country brokered a deal with the Biden administration to exchange five captive American citizens for five Iranian prisoners, also billions of dollars of frozen Iranian assets. Ryan, walk us through how this swap is slated to take place. How does it work? Well, there's a number of moving parts, and it's not just the prisoner swap and the asset freeing up that you mentioned. Uh, so the Treasury Department has announced a new range of sanctions uh, this morning, uh, for example. So they want to be clear in Washington 
that this isn't sort of a bunch of freebies and leniency towards the Iranian regime. So there's a targeting of uh, Iranian media outlets and there's also a targeting of uh, executives at cyber firms uh, that the Treasury Department says uh, have been involved in censoring and filtering the internet in Iran. Now, in terms of the prisoner swap, it's, it's as you describe, it's almost a one-for-one deal in people terms. And then the assets that will be handed back to the Iranians were, were assets that were always there, but were frozen under sanctions uh, that South Korea helped the US to impose. So it's Iranians getting Iranian money back rather than the US Treasury or another part of the federal government paying a ransom fee to Tehran. Well, in an interview this week with NBC, Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi responded to concerns that brokering this deal would make Iran more likely to hold American prisoners in the future. Just from the beginning, we have been uh, intending to release the Iranian frozen assets which have been unjustly frozen by the United States to freedom. We believe that this American action was very unjust just from the beginning. It has imposed further pressure on the Iranian people. So, Ryan, one of the key questions here is incentives, and that's the main criticism of this deal you hear, especially coming from Republicans here in the States, the incentive structure this sets up for Iranians. They hold Americans, they get their people back, and they get their money back, and that just encourages them to do it more. Is, is, does that criticism have weight with U.S. policymakers? Uh, it certainly has validity. It doesn't mean that it's uh, true or that it's always true. Mm-hmm. So we've seen this pattern play out before. Uh, a similar deal was struck four decades ago um, in the early 1980s. Uh, so you can see that it doesn't necessarily occur on an annual basis, but absolutely um, to say that it's negotiating with terrorists or uh, hostage takers, you know, there there is a legitimacy in airing that viewpoint. It's certainly one that has to be considered considered as people juggle all of the, the, the different elements of this equation. Zeba, what indications do we have of how Iran will use that $6 billion? Do we know? Well, uh, Todd, you've mentioned the interview that Raisi did with NBC. And in that same interview, he said that it is Iran's money and it will use it as it deems fit. And that exactly is what concerns those in the Republican wing of the House who are criticizing this particular prisoner swap. The United Nations has previously also uh, hinted that this incentivizes Iran to hold more more hostages uh, in exchange for similar deals. Now, remember, last year's protests triggered by by Masa Amini's death were also exposing the widespread unemployment and economic uh, issues that Iran faces, which is something that Raisi wants to deal with. Zeba makes an important point, Joyce. The the protests around 22-year-old Iranian uh, uh, Masa I mean, he last year uh, died in the custody of the country's moral police. So how is Iran grappling with what Zeba mentioned, which is the social turmoil from a year ago? No, absolutely. I mean, to have this prisoner uh, swap happen as soon as Monday, mind you, it's it's very good news for uh, for the U.S. to get its uh, prisoners back. One of them is Siamak Namazi, held since uh, 2015. But this uh, comes to show that one year on the protests, the regime is not uh, as isolated. Uh, it still hasn't figured out clear answers on how to deal with the hijab issue, with the morality police that's 
been uh, that is still emboldened, but we don't see it as uh, pervasive in in the streets uh, of Tehran. Uh, uh, for example, just uh, I was just looking online yesterday, and we are still seeing brave uh, brave women, Iranian women, going out and taking off their uh, their uh, veils. So the tendency, the desire for change is uh, still there. But as Ziba, as Ryan mentioned, this is a uh, regime that since its inception has relied on uh, very Islamic interpretation uh, in, its, in its policies and on hostage, uh, uh, hostage taking. So these are very tough questions how to answer. Will this embolden the regime to take more hostages and how it will use the money that it will get from uh, uh, from the uh, South Korea into Qatar, we simply have no way of knowing because it is uh, a closed society that has circumvented san- sanctions over and over again. Well, the incentive structures are vital here, and there are many downsides to a deal like this with a regime like Iran's. But one good thing that can come of it is what uh, Zeba and Joyce have just mentioned, the international attention and the reminder of the death of Masa Aimini and the protests for women's rights in Iran that have led to it and our attention to it. If anything good can come of this, that's one of them. Well, one of the things we do on this show is we hop around the world a little bit, um, globe, globe hoppers that we are. So let's hop to Brazil for just a moment, where Brazil's Supreme Court handed out the first sentence in one of the hundreds of Jair Bolsonaro supporters who stormed government offices on January 8th in an attempt to forcibly restore the right-wing leader back to power. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. Almost 1,500 people were detained that day, although most have been released. Now, the rioters refused to accept Bolsonaro's defeat to leftist Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula, those uh, whose inauguration, by the way, took place the week before. Lula beat Bolsonaro to win the presidency by the narrowest margin in Brazil's modern history, and it was on January 8th that Bolsonaro's supporters stormed government buildings to try to keep him in power. Let's hop to North Korea, where there's big news this week, and it was all over your news feeds because North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and Russian President Vladimir Putin, they met this week, Kim's first in-person visit abroad with a foreign leader since COVID-19, and uh, uh, COVID-19, which led to a massive lockdown in North Korea. Now, it appears that Kim will be in Russia for several days. Reports suggest that the two are talking military satellites and rockets. And two days ago, as Kim traveled to Russia, North Korea fired two rockets eastward over the ocean. So, Ryan, this all happens in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, something that Kim has referred to as, quote, a sacred fight to protect Russia's sovereignty and security so what are these two guys doing? Why now? Why publicly? And, and what are they dealing on? I think the first thing to note is that uh, it's very hazy what is going on. And these are two untrustworthy individuals, so we don't have a lot of information to work with. But we know that Vladimir Putin has few friends left, at least friends that would be willing to ship him arms, which he is running short of. So that's his interest here. He needs to uh, rearm his forces, and North Korea is one option for doing that. Now, North Korea, we know, uh, has a great interest in satellites, missiles, and space. Uh, And it's doing pretty well on the missile front in the sense that it 
is an increasing threat um, to to sort of its adversary nations, but it is not doing well on satellites and it doesn't really have a, a functioning space program, and Russia does. So Kim's interest um, is to obtain as much space technology as he can from Vladimir Putin. And Putin will just have to decide whether that is too dangerous uh, a deal to strike uh, and how much he's actually willing to give up there. In terms of the optics here, Ryan, I mean, does, does Vladimir Putin care about the optics of, uh, I'll just say it, like sinking that low to be on the international stage in public with the likes of Kim Jong-un to supply his war effort? I get that Kim loves the legitimacy and loves the pictures, but, but what about Putin? Uh, I don't think the optics are the problem, but... Uh, Kim is a dangerous man, and so he can fling missiles <laughs> and other technologies right back at you if he is unhappy. Um, so I think it's more a calculation there of um, what what could go wrong, not who could be disappointed in Vladimir Putin. Um, Zeba, transportation seems to have been a big deal in all of the pictures that were coming out of this meeting in Russia. According to some reports, Kim took um, an important train, one that was used by both his father and grandfather for diplomatic visits, a very special train to the the Korean ruling family. Um, Putin offered Kim a look at his very impressive limousine. Um, any thoughts on why transportation and and these optics seem to be so important to these guys? I think that's a very interesting uh, aspect to this whole thing. The, the legacy train that we saw Kim Jong-un really travel to Russia in is, is something that their fa- his family takes very seriously. There is a museum in North Korea which has the previous two generation leaders, his father and grandfather, and the trains that they took uh, to, to visit uh, you know, for trips abroad. And another interesting aspect was the, was the gift exchange between these two isolated leaders which speak volumes about uh, their friendship. Both of them gave each other their own produced rifles, which I find very fascinating which, you know, given the cu- current context. But I think the raging concern in Washington and elsewhere is that that Vladimir Putin will end up aiding North Korea in its plan to launch military satellites, which is what Ryan was mentioning. India hosted world leaders at the G20 summit this weekend. Also, the capital city of New Delhi underwent some hefty changes for this event. Flowers were planted. Murals were painted. People's homes were destroyed for it as well, though. However, that beautification project cost $120 million. So, Ryan, what did the G20 being hosted in India mean for that country's presence on the world stage. They are a country emerging. And for me, I put it in the context to their recent moon landing. It kind of all goes together. It does. And it really depends on where you're standing. India hasn't uh, sort of punched at its weight or above its weight for a long time in international politics. And an alliance with India is essential for both China and for Western countries at the moment. So India has a lot of leverage in terms of how it conducts itself. And Narendra Modi, the leader of India, uh, is certainly pitching this as India regaining its rightful place in world affairs. And he uses that um, to secure his own domestic legacy. There's an election coming up next year that he is almost certain to win, but he really wants to be a long-term leader, not just a a leader that goes from election to election. So he's really setting himself up to be that long-term leader, if not a leader for life. And the thing to watch here is that he plays to nationalist tendencies. He looks to the fact that for a long time, Indian politics was English language based. It was very elitist and it has kept many people in India down. But sometimes he plays to the worst tendencies there and pitches uh, Muslim communities against Hindu communities. He looks to assert 
this sort of Hindu majoritarianism and, and move India away from being a secular state. So there's a lot of democratic backsliding that people who care about democracy need to be thinking about when they, they look at Yep. Yeah, I completely agree with what Ryan is saying here. Just weeks before the G20, there was widespread ethnic violence in northeastern India and anti-Muslim violence just on the outskirts of New Delhi where the G20 summit was taking place. But Modi denied the White House, you know, request of a press conference and no leader, no global leader who attended this this mega summit really talked about this particular incident, which talks volumes about India's democratic downslide. Now, Modi, I think, succeeded in what he was aiming for. This this particular summit was essentially sounding the bugle of his 2024 election campaign months ahead. And there were big posters of him everywhere. Millions of dollars were spent to have his face plastered all across India. So his um, his position on the world stage and his stature, very much an important thing there, which it is for all leaders at the G20, but especially when you're the host. Well, let's move quickly to Vietnam because President Biden left India, went straight to Vietnam um, to show the growing relationship between the United States. And on Sunday, he signed an agreement that strengthened relations between the U.S. and Vietnam. So, Joyce, how is the relationship between the United States and its one-time many years ago enemy changing uh, because of this agreement that the president signed? What we've seen happen in Vietnam, Todd, is definitely turning uh, the page on that Cold War uh, era. I mean, up, to, up until 1994, uh, the U.S. had uh, an embargo on uh, on Vietnam. Now, uh, you know, two decades, uh, two decades on, three decades on, uh, what you're seeing is an agreement, a comprehensive strategic partnership between the two that puts the U.S. on par with China, with Russia, uh, India, and South Korea. When, when it comes to relationship with, with Vietnam, there are two dimensions uh, to this, the political dimension, uh, which is a big priority for this administration. We saw it with Modi at the G20 and in uh, Hanoi is in countering uh, China, is in pushing back against Chinese uh, influence, whether uh, uh, all across Asia, in, in the Middle East and uh, Europe. The other dimension is the manufacturing uh, and helping boosting trade between uh, between uh, the U.S. and uh, 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 Vietnam, and this is something we anticipate in in the aftermath of uh, of this uh, of this agreement. Ryan, in just a minute here, um, what's your take on the balance between China, the United States, and the relationship with Vietnam? Because because China is to the north, and China is key here. Yeah, so China occupies some Vietnamese islands, and that's been a tense relationship for a long time. But I think Vietnam has a strategy uh, to be try to be friends with everybody. So with this partnership in place, they now have strategic partnerships with every permanent member of the UN Security Council. So it's a case of just spreading its bets and trying to do everything it can, the government, uh, to fuel economic growth over the long term and bump them up into a, being a real middle-income country. Just quickly before we move on, because President uh, the president's press conference ran short on Sunday after the, before he came home um, after his press secretary Karine Jean Pierre announced that the press conference would be ending, and then all of a sudden, jazz music started to play. We talked about stability. We talked about making sure that the third world, the uh, excuse me, third world, the uh, the the, uh, the southern hemisphere had access to change. It had access. It wasn't confrontational at all. Thank you, everybody. This ends the press conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.
Joyce, it's not entirely clear from listening why the press secretary jumped in to cut things off. He he wasn't asked about some, you know, criminal case or something. A- any sense of why the press conference was cut short like that? Well, from what we're seeing is the president said later that he uh, wants to go to bed, that it's late, it's, it's you know, a 11-hour time difference. Uh, he appeared exhausted uh, in uh, this conference. There was a lot of rambling. Uh, he was talking about a John Wayne uh, movie, which, uh, you know, left many of the journalists a little bit confused over what's happening there. And uh, he also was struggling to read uh, the names of the, uh, of the journalists. Now, this is not something uh, uh, unfamiliar on these trips are uh, exhausting. Uh, You know, I've covered uh, President Biden as when he was vice president, and he has a tendency to ramble and go uh, go on. But given all the speculation about his age, uh, 73% of Americans, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal poll, think he's too old to seek uh, a second term. There is this image that he is is old, that press conference moment uh, didn't help. But it's also... uh, very much in uh, Biden's uh, style of rambling, of making gaffes, of talking about movies and going on and <laughs> on uh, and on. So, yeah, but the trip overall, it's, it's, it was a success, I think, for the administration to beef up, uh, uh, you know, its partnership with Vietnam, with India, encountering China and meeting uh, U.S. partners. But, but yeah, of course, this had to be the uh, dominant line in many outlets in, in the U.S. And, and Britain after the trip. I will say as somebody who covered Senator Joe Biden for 20 years in the United States Senate, um, not making any comments or excuses for how this press conference went, but rambling and talking about John Wayne in the middle of a conversation, that's regular Joe Biden, not just old Joe Biden. That's just Joe Biden always has been. Um, Let's move from Vietnam, however, and into China because major news out of China this week. The European Commission launched an investigation into state support for Chinese electric vehicle makers. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said, quote, global markets are now flooded with cheaper electric cars and their prices being kept artificially low by huge state Subsidies. So, Ryan, why is the European Commission investigating this now? Um, trillions of dollars are at stake, to be sure. Yep, there's two layers to this. And I should let listeners know I used to be the spokesperson for these issues at the European Commission about 10 or 12 years ago. So I'm pretty familiar with how all of this works. And the EU has a very strong anti-subsidy line, so it's no surprise um, that it's, it is genuinely drawing on its, its legal um, competencies here um, to push this investigation. But it's going to be a very difficult investigation because China's uh, economic statistics uh, are very intransparent. Um, but what the EU is alleging is that uh, from the sourcing of raw materials and, and uh, critical minerals, the sort of things that go into batteries in electric vehicles, through to uh, cheap loans, uh, that there is uh, sort of many stages to a Chinese subsidy program that makes it impossible uh, for European or other car manufacturers to compete on a level playing field in the European market. And I think uh, there's undoubtedly truth within that story, but it's going to be very hard to prove this case because it's also true that China has been building up its electric vehicle market for much longer than a lot of European manufacturers. And it's also true that companies like Tesla have been putting price cuts through this year 
willing to cut into their profits, um, been getting very efficient in how they make electric vehicles. So it's not just China that knows how to make cheap EVs. And actually, there's a bit of a protectionist <laughs> element in, in, in what the EU is doing here. And so they're going to have to work very hard to prove their case. Otherwise, they will be accused of being protectionist. Joyce, how have, the, how have China and Chinese car makers responded to the, the probe of, of their market here? I mean, definitely what Ryan is saying in, in terms of China's dominance, not just in, in, in the global electrical vehicle uh, market uh, surging in Europe, but also in, in the Middle East and uh, in North Africa. For, the, for, the, uh, for China, I mean, their response has been a little bit muted on this, but this is also, they see this as a double-edged uh, sword. The push is mostly coming from uh, the French uh, automakers, from from uh, uh, Renault, from uh, Peugeot, less so from the German uh, side, which actually has uh, factories in in China. So I'm not sure here if the EU is ready to go into a trade war, into trade restrictions and import tariffs uh, with China. And uh, to Ryan's point, uh, China is already ahead in, in uh, subsidies, in, in pushing the electrical vehicle market, in the lithium markets. Uh, so this is very much a double-edged sword for the Europeans. And we'll see where these threats go, whether to level the market or to, uh, as far as import tariffs go, or to uh, just to go uh, an all-out trade war with China. Well, speaking of China, let's go to the UK, because there, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak spoke with Chinese Prime Minister Li Chong after reports there was a Chinese spy in the ranks of the British Parliament. The whole house is rightly appalled about reports of espionage in this building. The sanctity of this place must be protected, and the right of members to speak their minds without fear or sanction must be maintained. We will defend our democracy and our security. So I was emphatic with Premier Li that actions which seek to undermine British democracy are completely unacceptable and will never be tolerated. Saber, what's he talking about? What happened here? This is a big story in the UK that has left the British, British Prime Minister in a fix. News emerged that, that police had arrested a parliamentary aide under the Official Secrets Act for allegedly spying on behalf of China. Now, this person was a researcher and had close contact with several members of parliament. He had access to the halls of government. The arrest highlighted just how exposed the British government may have been to Chinese espionage. The British Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee has also published a damning report that China has penetrated every sector of the UK's economy and that the British government has failed to respond adequately. So Rishi Sunak definitely has a lot on his plate because members of his own party are pressing him to designate China as a threat. Does this mean there's going to be an investigation and a purge in the parliament? I mean, where do they go from here? Well, they're raising a lot of voices on that count, but but Sunak also is trying to play a balancing act here. He's, he said he's keenly aware of the threat that China poses to the British democratic way of life. We just heard from him raising this issue at the G20 with Lee, Lee Chung. But at the same time, he also understands that he needs to engage with this economic giant and that our economic interests that the UK shares with China. One last story related to China, which I just have to tell you about since we're on the topic. After intense storms and flooding from a typhoon in southern China, get ready for this, more than 70 crocodiles escaped their enclosure. A spokesperson from the local emergency management office told AFP, Agence France Press, that 
officials were working to deal with the reptilian runaways. That's 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 disconcertingly vague. That <laughs> they're just working to deal with them. But I guess we'll we'll leave it um, we'll leave it to them. All right. Um, you're listening to the Roundup on 1A. My guests are Joyce Karam, Ryan Heath from Axios, and Zeba Warsing from PBS NewsHour. I'm Todd Zwillick from Vice News, and you are listening to 1A. An important story that we want to cap the show with here, Washington has been working overtime on a deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. At the G20 in New Delhi that we just discussed, President Joe Biden and Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman exchanged a warm handshake there. Last week, a high-level U.S. delegation visited Riyadh to pursue a potential agreement. So why is the U.S. pushing this deal so hard now, Ryan? Uh, that is a very, very difficult question. We've seen the rehabilitation um, surprisingly quickly, in my view, of um, the Saudi crown prince after everything that uh, went on with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and we have seen the Saudis try and use any number of different levers um, and involve themselves in everything from from sports to a range of other arenas. So I think the U.S. has um, decided that you can't uh, you can't cut the Saudis out of everything. Um, so you have to make the best of it. Uh, and it is clear that if you want to have uh, any form of stability in the Middle East, it would help to have Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, at least on talking terms. So I think that's the broad contours of why that yeah. needs to happen. Uh, but the Saudis have been pushing hard um, for a greater um, a greater voice to Palestinian frustrations um, before we actually achieve this normalization of relations. Well, it might have to go beyond just frustrations, Joyce. I mean, the Palestine question is a giant one at the center of whatever this agreement might be. And Saudi leaders have had to assure a delegation from Ramallah that Riyadh, quote, will not abandon the Palestinian cause as it engages in negotiations with Israel. So what are the concerns from the Palestinian Authority and and what could this deal do we think look like for their future? I mean, this would be a, I mean, we've talked under Trump about the deal of the century. We're at the anniversary of the Abraham Accords. This would be the deal of the century if it were to be uh, struck between Saudi with all that it represents, uh, you know, Muslim heritage, regional power, uh, and and Israel, uh, you know, as a Jewish state, as normalization efforts have been successive administrations have tried at this and have uh, have failed. Uh, so, but for the Saudis, Todd, as you mentioned, it's very important that they address the Palestinian uh, question. And the, the issue here is you have a far-right government in Israel led by uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that has its hand tied uh, and can't deliver what the Saudis are asking for for the Palestinians. That means sending cash uh, to the Palestinians authority that's on the verge of uh, collapse. That means sending military equipment uh, to the Palestinian Authority as it faces turmoil internally uh, within the West Bank and has lost control of uh, Gaza in 2007. So this is a very uh, complex problem that it 
it won't likely be addressed until we see a change of government in uh, in uh, Israel. But uh, for now, this is definitely an effort uh, that the administration uh, sees as a priority in the region worth pursuing. Uh, during the G20, it, uh, the administration uh, is bragging about an economic uh, corridor that it managed to uh, get the Saudis to agree on that would have a railway from India to the Gulf to Israel and then into uh, Europe. So these are changing uh, times from, uh, you know, 1990s and 1967 when talking about anything Saudi-Israel ties was uh, was a big taboo. Well, let me make sure I get Zeba in here because, um, Zeba, I want to ask you, um, Saudi Arabia, we've just heard, they're doing everything they can to appear to be a country ready to step in to Join the world community in terms of, I shouldn't say progressive, but a moderate, modern culture. Is this part of that for them? Well, certainly this is part of uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his vision for Saudi Arabia. He sees himself and his country as not just a regional leader, but he aims has and has ambitions to be seen as a glo- major global player. And this is all part of his vision 2030, where he is modernizing, diver- trying to diversify the economy away from oil and also wants to play a global crucial role. But as, Roy- as Joyce and Ryan both mentioned, there are too many moving pieces as far as the Saudi-Israel normalization deal is concerned. One Saudi watcher even told me that the Palestinian issue might not be very central to the Saudi agenda. They're actually going by a Saudi-first policy these days, and they would want to take their interests into account. So too many things uh, that are playing out, but certainly this, the, if this does end up cracking, it would be a major deal. Do you, just very briefly, do you agree that with a right-wing government in place, it's likely to go nowhere? Absolutely. As Israel watchers are pointing out, we are as far away from a two-state solution now as we have ever been. And given the present coalition, this seems more unlikely that the Palestinian issue would be heard effectively by all three parties. Incredibly important story coming out of Saudi Arabia and Ramallah and Jerusalem. We'll be watching those three capitals. And I want to thank my fantastic guests for this hour for the very able analysis for rolling with it while we had technical difficulties with that great reporting that came from North Africa and Libya um, uh, and Morocco. Um, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at All Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. Ryan Heath is global tech correspondent at Axios. And Zeba Warsi, producer at the great PBS NewsHour. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Aline Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Angiano produces our podcast also with help from Matthew Simonson and Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick from Vice News. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, 
A dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial.